time has come for drag queens to save the world. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars is back on Paramount Plus, and for the first time ever, I want you to use your talent for good for a change. <laughs> Eight iconic queens are competing for the charity of their choice. This is how you do drag. Who will slay it forward, win cash for their favorite cause, and a coveted spot in the Drag Race Hall of Fame. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. New season streaming May 17th exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, and Eric, as you know, Caressa Shield put on yet another very impressive on Friday night. And it leads once more to speculation and chatter about who she could possibly meet, who could give her a real challenge. And, and there was some talk about Katie Taylor, but... Katie's a lightweight. Shields has fought all the way up as high as super middleweight. Really, the only way it could conceivably happen is if Taylor went up to welterweight and Shields, who on Friday night was fighting as a junior middleweight, somehow squeezed her way down to welterweight. But, you know, Shields didn't seem too excited by the idea. She said, uh, quote, they'd have to pay me a lot to lose my butt and go down to 147. At the end of the day, I'm a woman. I don't have big breasts, but I got a nice butt. So come with that dough and I'll be there. At least a million and I'll be there. And honestly, I, I hear you, girlfriend. I mean, really, it's um, <laughs> the only reason that I'm not walking around at 147 right now is because I'm very proud of my butt and I, and I, and I don't want to lose it. But that said, you come to my door with a million, it's farewell to us. <laughs> how, how, how about you? How much money would you need, Eric, to lose your hiney? I am, uh, as as a Jew, I am giving you honorary Jew status to say the word tuchus. I'm okay with it. You pronounced it well. Good job. Okay, um, thank you. <laughs> uh, look, for the right price, I'll try. A million does sound intriguing, but the problem is there, there isn't much to work with there. Uh, the, <laughs> the fact that you're even asking tells me you haven't spent a lot of time sizing up my butt, which I'm perfectly fine with. Uh, but uh, I, I have a very flat ass. These are these are the genetics I got. Uh, all the squats and thrusters in the world can't change it. So I can't much relate to that Clarissa quote. Um, yeah, I, I have many fears in life, but uh, losing my big butt has never been one of them. Uh, pandemic week 51, folks. This is what it's <laughs> This is where we're at now. Although, honestly, if you've listened to any of our earlier podcasts, you'll know we can't really blame it on the pandemic. No. It's just the way of things. Had, had the opportunity to come up to discuss uh, butts, hours, and otherwise <laughs> uh, two years ago, I'm sure we would have done it. I'm sure. Yes, indeed. Um, all right. This week on the podcast, that's probably the last of our butt-related discussion, but we'll see. No promises. Um, we will be previewing both Wednesday's Showbox broadcast and Saturday's Showtime Championship boxing card, and we'll give our predictions uh, there as appropriate. We will also preview the amazingly nearly a decade in the making Chocolatito Estrada rematch. Uh, we'll cover news about a host of significant fights that appear to be coming together. I will count down my picks for the top five weapons in boxing today. But we start this week with something a little different. Uh, we start by looking back, way back, 50 years ago this very day, if you're listening to this podcast on Monday. Yes, March 8th marks the 50th anniversary of last century's fight of the century. Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier 
the Madison Square Garden for the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world. It was one of those fights that actually lived up to the hype, which is saying something given the amount of hype that went into it. Uh, it was a high quality contest for sure. Uh, ended up being a decision win for Frazier, punctuated by him knocking down Ali with a left hook in the 15th round. Um, any heavyweight title fight, especially at the time, especially between two undefeated former Olympic gold medalists, especially when one of them's Ali, was always going to be big. This one, though, was so much bigger because in many ways it was more than a fight between two men. In a strange way, it was a proxy fight for America. Uh, I was not ringside for this fight on account of the fact that I was still 22 days shy of my third birthday. <laughs> and Eric, well, Eric was nowhere to be seen. Uh, right. So we've called upon a guest this week who can give us the first-hand stories from that historic night. Uh, he's a longtime broadcaster of boxing, many other sports and other events, mostly for CBS, but also for various outlets around the world. He's also the author of On Someone Else's Nickel, A Life in Television, Sports and Travel. It is the one and only, quite possibly, future Hall of Famer, Tim Ryan. Tim, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Great to be with you. Look forward to the conversation. So... Uh, Tim, the, the story of how you came to be at Madison Square Garden that night 50 years ago calling the fight, uh, and, and particularly what audience you were calling it for, is really something. Um, I, I know that a good interviewer asks questions, uh, but I, I'll sacrifice my reputation as a good interviewer here and simply <laughs> request uh, that you retell the story of what you were doing behind the microphone that night. Uh, yes. Well, I, all these years later, I'm, I'm still trying to fully answer that question. It was uh, a lot of good fortune, let's put it that way. Uh, a good uh, friend of mine who was at that time was running uh, the broadcast side of Madison Square Garden alerted me a couple of days before the fight during a time in which I was working for a local station in New York, WPIX-TV, as a, as a um, uh, news anchor and a guy who did the sports as well. But I had done some boxing on mutual radio, several fights, uh, and, and it was Jack Price who had uh, given me that opportunity by pointing me to mutual and having them hire me. So uh, two days before the Ali Frazier fight, I get a call from Jack saying, uh, how would you like to call the Ali Frazier fight? I said, what are you, doing? is this a joke? You know? <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. He said, they've got a, they have a number of, of um, radio broadcasters from all around the world, including a New Zealand broadcasting company, but they can't afford to send a guy all the way from New Zealand and they're looking for an English language announcer. Do you want to do it? And I said, of course. Uh, I mean, what a, what a thrill for me. And uh, I'd, be, I'd be happy to do that. So that's how I, how I got uh, the, uh, the gig. It was just a good luck and uh, fortunate for me, um, obviously. And then, of course, it turned into our uh, winding up on the Armed Forces Radio Network as well. And in short form, uh, the promoter's of the fight, uh, Jack Kent Cook and Jerry Parencio uh, had a closed circuit telecast that was going into many parts of the world and certainly all across America. And uh, they didn't want us to give the fight to the, uh, to the Armed Forces Radio Network. And that was it's been the first time in history that the uh, service people around the world for the U.S. would not receive a world championship heavyweight, heavyweight fight. It was just a tradition that they would hear it. So that became a scandal when the story broke the day before the fight uh, in the New York Times. And they quickly uh, capitulated. And then suddenly the Armed Forces Radio Network needed an announcer <laughs> and found that I was the only English language one going out. Would I be uh, willing to do it, uh, share my feed with the Armed Forces? And I said, absolutely. 
they weren't. They said we haven't got any money. I said that's okay. I'm honored to be asked and uh, happy to do it. Just uh, send me a tape of it afterwards, in which they did promptly the next day. Which you still have, I believe. Is that not correct? An old reel-to-reel yes, tape. Wow. Yes, it's an old quarter-inch uh, reel-to-reel. Uh, and uh, one of my more techie sons uh, was kind enough to uh, get it onto a, a CD a number of years ago. Uh, I haven't, uh, you know, religiously listened to it. In fact, I hadn't heard it for years, uh, listening to my own voice. Uh, but uh, once uh, the phone call started to come like this about uh, my role at the fight, uh, I thought, well, I better take a listen here and, and see if, uh, <laughs> if I did the fight you know, well enough. <laughs> and I did listen. And did you do it well enough? Are you happy with your... Uh, uh, yes, with... I, I, I was reasonably happy with it. Uh, <laughs> um, and and I, I guess probably the most reassuring thing was that, was that uh, the way I was scoring the fight for myself, and, and thus kind of reporting it as it was going along, uh, it, it pretty much was the way the, the judges and the referee who did the official scoring I saw the fight. Uh, I was kind of with them uh, all the way. Ah, that's always good. And I've got a sort of equally sort of broad question as as Eric's opening one, which is basically, uh, you know, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot more. Like you said, now you've been getting these calls, but what kind of memories really stand out from the fight itself 50 years later? And, and And I'm curious as to whether it's in contention for one of the best fights you ever called or whether it's just one of the biggest. Well, I, I would take the last part of that first, and I, I think it was the biggest um, uh, because of the attention that it had at the time. It was really tied into a whole lot of social and political issues that everyone was aware of uh, when the fight was made, uh, and they, they agreed to meet each other. Uh, of course, Frazier was already the defending champion, and Ali had been out of the game for three years. Uh, there were questions about would he be you know, physically fit enough and having uh, real some boxing uh, training uh, before the fight. Uh, uh, three years away is a long time for any athlete, certainly in boxing. Uh, mm-hmm. So there were those questions all became um, more of the story than just, okay, who ought to win this fight in a normal matchup? Uh, and obviously the atmosphere at Madison Square Garden also became a huge part of the story because everybody who could get a ticket wanted to be there. It was more than just a championship fight. It was an event, and it was an event that brought with it a whole lot of of, uh, political feelings and race feelings and government feelings and Vietnam War feelings, and uh, that's what made it uh, such a, a large sporting event and much more than just a boxing match. Yeah, and speaking of of the event that it was, um, I, I've heard a lot about you know what a tough ticket it was, and how uh, even a lot of celebrities who wanted to be there couldn't be there. Um, you've rubbed elbows with countless luminaries over the years, whether at boxing or at other events. Was this the most star-studded sports event you ever attended? Um, I would say it it it, it is. I. Obviously, championship fights still attract a, a celebrity component at ringside. Many of them just hoping to get on TV <laughs> with a shot from one of the cameras. But uh, this one, again, uh, there was kind of a need uh, for people who could get a ticket or had the influence to somehow get a pass or an invitation to be there uh, because they, they saw uh, that this was kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing with all of these other 
uh, feelings going on. And I think I've used the word before in describing what the atmosphere was like in the garden, that there was a, you know, a palpable tension uh, mm-hmm. along with the, the vibe of, of uh, excitement that people know they're coming to something that should be very special. And even if the fight isn't all that great, that they were there with all of these other assembled folks uh, in what was really an, an historic occasion as much as a an athletic competition. Right. So, so when you look back, when you think of this fight, is the first thing that you think of what a huge event it was and that atmosphere and the celebrities and all that? Or, or do you think first of the fight itself? Like, do you, the, of course, the Frazier dropping Ali with the left hook and Ali getting up. Is, is that the first thing you think of? Or is it more the, the event than the fight with this one? No, it's, it's definitely more the event, okay. uh, especially because I covered boxing for so many years afterwards, 22 years with, with Gil Clancy at CBS. And uh, we, we covered more than 300 championship fights. And, and many of those were, were better fights than, than the one at the Garden that night. But it was the combination of the story of the two boxers and why they were in the ring together, but everything else that surrounded it, uh, particularly, obviously, Vietnam War and, mm-hmm. and Ali's having recently changed his name uh, from Cassius Clay. Right. So, you know, you've talked about how many, you know, boxing events you've covered, but you've, you've called almost every sport imaginable over the course of your career. I'm curious, how is the skill set for doing boxing blow by blow different from other sports? Like, is it easier to, is it almost easier to BS your way through a call of a fight if you only know the sport casually as compared to calling other sports? Well, uh, of course, the easiest thing about it is there's only two guys in there. Right. <laughs> so mm. it's, like a, it's like a tennis match in that regard, whether it's men or women. Uh, so that, that's a little easier to keep track of than, say, uh, 90 NFL players in a game. Uh, <laughs> right. so, uh, so that's kind of the first thing, and that, that really becomes, you know, in terms of time required for preparation to cover an event. However, if you take it uh, to the other dimension of uh, tennis, is the uh, same idea. You've only got two players on the court. Uh, ski racing, which I, I covered at, at Olympic Games and World Championships and World Cups, uh, you, you've got a lot of athletes, but they're one at a time when they're on the course. Mm. Uh, they do require, obviously, if you've got you know, 15 or 20 contenders, then you, know, you need to do your homework on, on who might get into the medals. And uh, so you're looking at a lot of uh, you know, previous races and so on. But, uh, but boxing, uh, when you're calling it, uh, your reliance has to be twofold. One is that you're seeing the significant punches and describing them whether as to whether they are significant or are they scoring punches. I see a lot of them, like Joe Frazier always did. And then uh, when you've got an expert like I had with Bill Clancy, one of the great trainers ever and became, in my judgment, the best commentator uh, as an expert analyst, he was able to watch both fighters at the same time and and tell you exactly what happened in an exchange whereas a lot of the ex-boxers who have become commentators tend to see only one at a time because mm-hmm. they're they're thinking about themselves being in there so you know it, boxing it seems to be a simple thing to do but it's uh it's not as uh, as such if you're doing the best job possible for the spectator mm. i'm actually curious listening to that response i'm wondering did you ever approach it slightly differently if you were calling a fight on the radio as opposed to over TV, because on the radio, you've got to paint everything, right? Like, you know, 
the viewers can see some punches landing. And like you said, you've kind of got to just explain what punches is, 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 is important or so forth. Do, do you have to paint more of a picture when you're doing it for radio? On May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? <laughs> Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Yes, indeed, and and uh, you know I I didn't I didn't wind up uh, doing uh, nearly as much radio as right. I had I did doing television. I had done maybe uh, oh a half a dozen fights, uh, no more than ten before uh, the Ali Frazier fight in, in that uh, um, mutual radio contract that I had, um, and I had done a little bit in college, and that was about it. Uh, and then after the Ali Frazier fight, it wasn't long before. I may have done a couple of more things on mutual. I kind of forget, frankly, but uh, we're talking from 1971. And suddenly in 1977, after the uh, 76 Olympic Games, television uh, jumped all over the uh, the American um, mm. you know, medal winners and television started to cover boxing from all over the world. So I, I didn't ever do any more radio uh, after about uh, 1977 or so. It was all television. Mm. And a lot of those years uh, doing it on television, you did work with Gil Clancy, who you mentioned. Um, our younger listeners uh, probably missed out on uh, most or all of Gil's broadcasting career. I know the two of you were very close and, and worked together for a long time. Uh, for those who, who didn't get to hear him, what what made Gil so special as a broadcaster? You, you mentioned that he could sort of track both fighters. Was that really the, what set him apart or was there more to it than that? Well, there, there was more to it, but that was really the big difference. I mean, if you listen even today to, to uh, most of the time, you've got uh, an ex-fighter who's, who's doing the, the so-called color. And sometimes they've, they've got three people, which is ridiculous in my mind. But uh, Gil's ability to see the total picture and describe the course of a fight and what was actually happening, um, at, you know, at the end of a round, uh, you would have had a sense from what Gill said as to who won the round and why. And, and I just in listening to most of the former boxers uh, and it's natural for them. They kind of have to relate them, their own style and their own uh, view of the opponent. Uh, and, and that's what they, they bring to the, to their broadcast, but it doesn't always give you the comprehensive picture of what really mattered in, in an exchange of blows. And, and, Gil was just remarkable in how he could do that. Plus, he would bring a, a personality as a, an ex-trainer uh, and talk about what goes on in the corner with one trainer or another. He knew most of the trainers, and he had a lot of amusing stories that he could quickly relate about, you know, in reference to working with Emil Griffith and, and Ralph Tiger Jones and so on. And he, he, he could tell a funny little anecdote in a few seconds 
by seeing something and listening to something in the corner between rounds and then be able to compare it to to something that he had said or done to his fighter. And so uh, he he was a great personality in addition to being, as I said, the best commentator in that regard. Right. And and you had a lot of uh, great big personalities that you worked with in, in various sports. Uh, are you still tight with any of your old broadcast partners like John Madden, John McEnroe, Terry Bradshaw, et cetera? Are you still close with with some of those guys? Well, yes, with some of them. And oddly enough, in the last uh, just uh, in recent months, um, I had uh, a call from Matt Millen, who I worked with on mm. NFL football, a great Raiders linebacker and um, uh, and I, I've just we've been, I've exchanged phone messages now, and uh, I actually tried him again this morning. Uh, but I, he had left a voicemail for me, and had, he had been talking to Joe Theismann. And uh, Joe told him that uh, Joe had been talking to me recently because he recently published a book uh, from the same publisher. And Joe and I had worked together uh, way back at, at CBS and uh, NFL football. And uh, so that kind of one led to the other. Uh, and I heard from from Matt. And then the other day, by accident, it's a true story. I, w- I was looking for somebody else on, on my phone list on my phone, and I, I saw one on there it was a, a phone number that I wasn't quite sure who it was. So I rang the phone number, and then I realized it was Sugar Ray Leonard. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so Ray Leonard called called me back, but he missed me and left a message. <laughs> saying, you know, I got your message, Tim. I think it's 25 years since you know, we've talked and been together, and so I'll call back. So I've, I've now, I've talked, I tried him this morning, and I didn't get a reply as yet. But, uh, yeah, there are others that I've been able to keep in touch with, and, and you, know, you run into them somewhere, usually at a sports event. John McEnroe uh, and I talk, uh, oh, every couple of months, and, and uh, I've seen him at uh, more in more recent years at, tennis events so I'm just there as a spectator or whatever. Uh, we always uh, take some time for each other. He's been a, a great friend over the years and, and, a, and an important story in the book as well, as you may know if you've read the book. Very helpful uh, uh, to me helping to organize a fundraiser for uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, as, my, as you probably know, my first wife who I lost to, to Alzheimer's. And John and his brother Patrick and, and his dad, John Sr., uh, uh, were all uh, sensationally helpful and uh, helping me stage a fundraiser in, in Boise, Idaho years ago. Right. And um, it, it occurs to me, as you uh, told that story about Sugar Ray Leonard, that there are probably some sports fans who would pay a lot of money to uh, hack into <laughs> your phone contact list. <laughs> well, I hope that doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> because Ray's got a lot of fans. They'd be happy to say they can talk to, to Sugar Ray Leonard. Yeah. And he, he's a good guy. I'm, I'm so happy for uh, for his post career, you know, not, not all of them go well. And, right. and Ray's uh, handled his very well and uh, been a successful, uh, uh, you know, person uh, out of the ring. He's, he's a good man. Yep. Uh, so in addition to, to Ali Frazier, you worked two of the most memorably wild nights in boxing history, the fan man fight and the bite fight. Uh, so <laughs> you're in a unique position to compare these, these two crazy episodes in boxing history uh was either of the two more shocking than the other was was either more challenging to react to in the moment as a broadcaster well fan man for sure uh and I, gratefully without taking my own book out here i've forgotten the name of that guy but um i i, I remember the whole thing vividly because the potential uh, disaster 
that was, you know, just missed being exactly that. Mm. Uh, it would have been a horrible circumstance for for everybody, and and there could easily have been fatalities, uh, because when when he actually, you know, made contact, he, his his hope clearly, as he said afterwards, was he was literally trying to land in the ring. That was mm. his goal, and 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 he couldn't possibly time that to be between rounds with the, with the you know right. got to, you got one minute uh, between a round uh so he was prepared to uh, come in and, and literally land while the guys are in there throwing punches and he fell short by only a few feet and in fact landed uh, uh, right on the edge of the ring up against the ropes from the outside and then he's got the, you know the accoutrement of the of the of the uh, kite um, and he and he fell backwards, uh, and, but that was a, a makeshift outdoor stadium. Mm. They had uh, put the ring outside, they had, so that meant that there were light standards all around it. Uh, he could have easily hit one of those and knocked it over, and brought them all down on on everyone at ringside. Mm. Uh, it, I mean, it was a very scary moment, and I, I do write about it in the book. And I, I what I remember with you know <laughs> provide some. Levity uh, was that in the post-fight party, uh, Billy Crystal, whom I knew, and and uh, the actor's name's going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to forget it right now, but it's in the book. Um, as I'm coming in afterwards uh, to uh, have a post-fight cocktail and get my breath, uh, Billy sees me uh, uh, coming in, and I'm going, you know, boy, that was we were all lucky that that wasn't worse. That could have been a real disaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and Billy said, "Oh, Tim, you're taking it too seriously." And, and I said, "Well, no, I'm not, Billy. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't think you would have been saying that if the guy had actually, you know, crashed and pulled down light standards. It could have fallen on everybody. Right. Uh, so it it was a very scary um, moment, uh, and it was taken far too lightly by everyone, uh, except for the um, um, the boxers at uh, Riddick, uh, Riddick Bowes people." who beat the hell out of that guy was, <laughs> yeah. uh, they all, they all had, uh, like those big cell phones at that, you know, where they were bigger and right. at that time. And, uh, and he fell back into right where those guys were sitting and, uh, and they beat the hell out of him and he had to go to the hospital, but there wasn't a lot of sympathy uh, for him at that point. Yeah, you know, we don't we don't long much for the days of the big brick cell phone, but uh, <laughs> that is one advantage. If you need to beat someone up, an, an iPhone just won't do it. <laughs> That's right, exactly. But it was you know it was exciting for sure. It was amazing that the two boxers, you know, they were just dumbfounded, and of course they delayed those. You know, they had to stop and mm-hmm. and get things cleaned up and get the guy out of there and so on. And the fact is that they just carried on with the, with the fight. Uh, I thought that was a great tribute to them. It's just kind of, well, okay, uh, like a long commercial break we just had here (laughs) between rounds. That was quite stunning to me that they, it was a heavyweight championship fight. (laughs) crazy Tim it has been an absolute joy thank you so much indeed for joining us Uh, your book on someone else's nickel is available on Amazon and many other different outlets it's been an absolute joy to talk to you and uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast thank you my pleasure and uh, I I wish uh, that I could be on with you guys every week you're doing a great job (laughs) thanks Tim great talking to you 
All right. Our, our thanks again to Tim. What a pleasure to talk to him. Uh, he is every bit the nice guy I always imagined him to be. Yeah. Uh, then again, how could he not be? He's Canadian. Exactly. Uh, anyway, an honor and a pleasure to have him on the podcast. Uh, now let's shift gears from talking about the past to talking about the future, the very near future. Uh, Showtime airs two fight cards this week, both from the fight sphere at Mohegan Sun. And let's talk first about the big triple header on Saturday night, starting at 9 p.m. The headliner was our guest on the podcast last week, David Benavides. Uh, if you missed that interview, definitely go back and check it out. He was a pleasure to talk to, had a lot of interesting things to say, including confidently declaring himself to be the only super middleweight who can beat Canelo Alvarez. Uh, but before he can think about facing Canelo... He has to get past a man who has served as a frequent Canelo sparring partner, Ronald Ellis, on Saturday. And we talked to him about that. Uh, he's trying not to look past Ellis, although David is a huge favorite in this one. The 24-year-old Benavides is 23-0 with 20 knockouts. Ellis is 18-1-2 with 12 KOs. He's 31 years old, which puts him more or less in his physical prime, but with the clock ticking in terms of doing something to take his career to the next level. Showtime audiences are quite familiar with both fighters. This will be Benavides's fifth fight on the network and Ellis's sixth. Uh, as big an underdog as he is, uh, Ellis has never been knocked down or knocked out. So Benavides has something to shoot for besides just winning the fight. Uh, Kieran, does Benavides need a knockout here to raise his stock? Or is Ellis more dangerous here than people are giving him credit for? Uh, break it down and, and give me your pick for the fight. So on his way up, you know, I expected more from Ellis in terms of a career and ability to perform on the big stage. He's clearly got skills. Um, you know, he comes from a good boxing family, um, both his brother and sister box, of course. He's always in good shape. But it just feels that something's missing there, that he doesn't have that certain something that enables him to go up a gear against better opposition. You know, at, at times when we've seen him on Showtime, he's had like that real right hand uh, trouble that he's, he's injured his right hand mm -hmm. in a couple of fights on Showtime, but he's gone away. He's had some surgery. He claims that that's a lot better now. Uh, he he's this time he's officially competing at 168 where he's more comfortable. Last time out against Matt Korobov, he was officially at middleweight, even though he blew past that weight by about five pounds. Um, so because of that, you know, with the right hand being fixed, with him being at a more comfortable weight, maybe he's going to look a little better than we've seen him the last couple of times out. But I'm not sure. I'm just I just wonder if what we've seen uh, at this stage of Ronald Ellis is, is, is who he is, like a good, talented guy who just doesn't have what it takes to go up that extra level. And, and it's very hard for me to see how he wins here. You know, I think Benavides is a better boxer. He's a harder hitter. He's been up against better quality of opposition. He's been in bigger fights. His failings have been outside the ring, um, not inside it. Uh, I think he might, Benavides, have a difficult and awkward time with Ellis early. Uh, you know, he might not have ever what it takes to look particularly impressive or spectacular, but he can be awkward, Ellis. I think it might prove to be a bit of a frustrating night early for Benavides as he struggles to make an impression, but I think he's really going to want to try to get away with a stoppage here. A win is fine, uh, obviously, but he is now starting to make a lot of noise about possibly being in those Canelo sweepstakes. The possibility of that might be getting closer. You know, if Canelo is able to make his way past Billy Joe Sanders in May, then he's going to be looking at Benavides or Caleb Plant probably for the fall. So I think it really is incumbent upon Benavides to make a good impression in the ring, particularly to try and make people forget about some of the mistakes he's made outside of the ring. Uh, 
I think it'll take him a little while to get going, but Benavidez will, once he gets a full head of steam, just be too much for Ellis. He'll, he'll just have far too much a punch output. Those punches will be too strong. I wouldn't be surprised if Ellis still stays on his feet, but there will be either a corner or referee stoppage, I think, uh, in round 10. Yeah, you know, looking at this fight, I, I hate to say it, but, um, you know, we called Canelo Alvarez versus Avni Yildirim a total mismatch going in. We called it that coming out. If I'm being consistent and fair and honest, I have to call this one a mismatch on paper as well. Uh, of course, Benavidez is not nearly as proven a fighter as Canelo, so it seems more like a natural part of his progression to fight the occasional opponent who is not quite a serious contender. But still, th- this is to me a fight where the talent gap between the two fighters is steep. Benavides is probably somewhere among the two or three best 168-pounders in the world, and Ronald Ellis, uh, BoxRec, ranks him number 32 in the division. And that sounds about right. Uh, I mean, he was losing clearly to Karabov, uh, who's a good fighter, but an aging, not quite elite middleweight. Uh, And Ellis was losing every round, in my view, before the injury saved him. He is durable, uh, but Benavidez hits harder than I think anyone Ellis has fought so far. Uh, Like you, I don't think it'll be a quickie, but I think it'll be one-sided enough that the accumulation adds up. And Benavidez gets the stoppage, I'm going to say, a little bit sooner than you're predicting. I'm going to say TKO7, Ellis's corner, mm-hmm. throws in the towel as he's taking shots and has reached a point where he clearly has no chance of coming back to win. And mm-hmm. they uh, surrender. Yep. All right. So similar, if not quite the same there. Yes. Um, while the main event has the potential to be a one-sided affair, the co-feature on Saturday has serious show-stealer potential. Uh, and that's in part because anytime. Isak Pitbull Cruz fights, there is show stealer potential. Uh, we last saw him on the Tank Davis Leo Santa Cruz undercard, just blowing out Diego Magdaleno in one round. Uh, he's 22 years old, 21 and 1 with 15 KOs. He's a real rising potential force in the lightweight division. He's taking on an undefeated opponent in 24 year old Jose Matias Romero of Argentina. But Romero's a very different kind of fighter than the compact, aggressive 5 foot 4 inch Cruz. Uh, Romero's taller, skinnier. He's much more boxer than puncher. His record's 24-0, but he has just eight KOs in that. Uh, Romero took this fight on short notice. He's coming up from 130 pounds. He's not tested at the top level, but he has beaten a 15-1 fighter, a 14-2 fighter, and a 12-0 fighter. So, Eric, how high are you on Pitbull Cruz? What can you tell us about Romero? And what is your prediction for this scheduled 12-round fight? So the, the easy question to answer, how high am I on Cruz? Very high indeed. Uh, in my latest column in Ringside Seat Magazine, I was giving out a bunch of random year-end awards, and he got the award for most exciting prospect that not enough people are talking about. Um, I, I've, I've called him a potential X factor in this lightweight division. You know, there are the four princes, a trademark, Kieran mm-hmm. Mulvaney, uh, <laughs> that everyone is talking about. And Cruz is lurking as this wild card entry who's getting better with every fight. His only loss came when he was 17 years old. He's a little ball of energy, and I'm always psyched to watch him fight. Romero, it's hard to know how good he is. Uh, As you said, he's beaten a few opponents with good records, but they aren't fighters you've heard of, and it's all been in South America. He's actually never traveled to the U.S. at all before this week. Um, We don't know his exact height, but to my eyes... He looks like about 5'8 or 5'9, should be 4 or 5 inches taller than Cruz. From what I've watched of him, uh, no, he's not a puncher. Uh, nine of his last 10 fights have gone the distance, and you mentioned just eight KOs total. 
but he isn't a pure boxer either. He'll, he'll be aggressive, and he is willing to exchange from what I've seen. He doesn't seem exceptionally tricky, just solid skills. I think if he kept it on the outside against Cruz, he would have a clear advantage from that distance. But I'm not sure it's going to be one of those fights, you know, one of those ones where Pitbull has to work overtime to get close and Romero is on his bike and all that. Uh, I just don't see Romero sticking to that sort of game plan based on what I've seen of him. The most troubling note for me on Romero is that he's been knocked down a couple of times in his career. If he's a guy who's willing to exchange and he doesn't have an iron chin, he might be exactly what Cruz wants. Uh, I think this will be a very competitive fight, fun fight, until the moment that it turns not so competitive mm-hmm. when Cruz breaks through and drops or hurts Romero. And then from that point, it might not last much longer. I'm going to say Cruz KO six in a fight that's <laughs> about dead even prior to the knockout. What say you? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, look, uh, obviously the key is for Romero to try to keep Cruz off him, try to use his jab to keep him at range. That's the smart thing to do. But while it can obviously be, you know, sometimes advantageous to be the taller guy, to be the one who's theoretically able to keep your guy at range. When you're the taller guy, your opponent is not only quite a bit shorter, but then makes himself shorter yet. Mm -hmm. Oddly, that can actually negate all those advantages of being taller because now you've got to really reach down at an awkward angle and in doing so, you kind of expose yourself. Um, And that's, of course, why Cruz fights even smaller than he is. And... Like you said, not just eight KOs in 24 fights for uh, Romero. It's just one in the last 10. And so, therefore, if you're going to try and keep a guy like Cruz at range, you better have something to deter him. And I'm not sure that Romero does have that. I think it might be a bit scrappy at times. I think it might be quite fun at times because, yeah, I think initially Romero is going to try and keep him off uh, at some distance. But he's eventually going to have to trade inside. The smart thing is that Cruz is going to come in underneath and work that body, I think. And that's what's going to start slowing him down. The amazing thing is, or actually perhaps not that amazing, I went back and forth over what round he would stop him in. and Because I do think it will be a stoppage, uh, not least because of the last moment uh, arrival of, of Romero in the fight. And I went ahead and picked the sixth round. <laughs> um, but I do think it's going to be a breaking him down rapidly kind of a stoppage that once he starts hitting him to the body i think you'll start seeing romero in retreat uh might be a stopping him standing up or he might just take a knee kind of a deal that kind of a stoppage i think yeah i would say not amazing at all that we picked the same round it was bound to happen soon it hadn't happened in a little while it was it's amazing that we've been differing so much (laughs) yes all right uh opening the show is a 10-rounder with a contract weight of 155 pounds, so a junior middleweight fight with a one-pound buffer, pitting 2012 U.S. Olympian Terrell Gachet, 21-2-1 with 10 KOs, against Jamonte Clark, who is 15-1-1, 7 KOs. Uh, We know what we have with the 33-year-old Gachet at this point. He's fought five times on Showtime, including losing by decision to Erickson Lubin last time out. Clark will be making his Showtime debut, and the 26-year-old from Cincinnati presents some interesting challenges for Gachet. His southpaw stance may or may not pose problems. He's the fifth straight lefty Gachet has faced, which is remarkable. Uh, But on top of that, he's extremely tall for the division, listed at 6'2", with an 80-inch reach, two inches longer than Tommy Hearns' reach. Uh, And the most notable result on Clark's resume is a draw against a fighter somehow significantly taller than him 
praying mantis in boxing trunks, Sebastian <laughs> Fundora. Uh, that result, the fact that he got a draw there, that tells you Clark can fight a bit. Uh, Kieran, what else can you tell us about Gachet, Clark, or the matchup, and who are you picking? Yeah, you know, Clark's like an interesting guy to watch as a fighter. As you mentioned, he's, his reach is immense. He's a tall guy. But from what I've seen of him, he doesn't always maximize that height. It's like you look at him and you go, oh, yeah, he's a tall guy in there. But the freakishness of his measurements, I think, isn't necessarily obvious when you watch the way he fights. I, I'm not sure he takes the most advantage of those physical advantages. He can be reached. He can be touched hard on the jaw. He can be hurt. He's very, very tough. Uh, Vernon Brown had him in all kinds of trouble early in their 10-rounder, scored an early knockdown. Um, but Clark came back to outpoint him. He, uh, he was actually knocked out of the ring under the bottom rope by Jason Rosario, calmly collected himself outside of the ring, uh, found the stairs, went up the steps, back into the ring, beating the count, I think, at about 13, 14, something like that. Um, and that remains his only loss. Um, as for Gaucher... Yeah, again, he's, he's just one of those guys, another one who doesn't appear to have the extra gears you really need at this yeah. level. He, he's competent and he's capable without being exceptional. He's skilled, but he's slow. That said, you know, his only two losses have been against high-caliber opposition, Erislandi Lara and Erickson Lubin. The draw against Austin Trout in the middle is a little disappointing given where Trout is at these days. And what's kind of interesting, as you mentioned, he's prior to uh to clark gaucher has fought four southpaws in a row prior to that stretch of four southpaws he was 20 and 0 since then he's won two and one mm. is that because he struggles with southpaws or is that because there were high quality guys in there uh and i think that's perhaps some a question that might get answered here on on the saturday night gaucher feels as if he's reached his ceiling while clark is maybe still looking for his I'm almost tempted to pick Clark to spring the mild upset here, but from what I've seen of him, he's certainly not a scrub. He's a good fighter, but I don't think he's quite good enough. Uh, I fully expect this to be the least attractive matchup of the evening. If you are going to go to the refrigerator and get a beer, it's probably going to be during this fight. I'm not sure that either man will truly greatly separate himself. I, I think at the end, Gaucher will do enough to earn a decision. I think like two... Two of the cards will have him by several rounds, but I think there'll be a, an odd one in there, and it'll be a majority decision win for Terrell Gaucher. All right. Well, uh, the good news is that we have a little uh, room here for t uh, a little disagreement in terms of our picks, uh, and uh, I guess good news for you, as uh, I don't think we gave the score update, but you're behind by four points coming in, so a chance for you to maybe make up ground, maybe fall farther behind. In any case, uh, I am obviously picking Clark based on yeah. all of that. Uh, I can't tell if it's just wishful thinking that I'm picking Clark. If it's just, right. here's a newer, younger guy with more upside, yeah. you know, Gachet is not someone you can really get excited about. So I'm going to pick Clark to win because it's better for boxing in the division if Clark wins. Maybe that's fueling my pick. Uh, maybe Gachet is going to punch inside Clark's long, wide punches and make me look foolish, uh, but I'm going to go with Clark anyway. He showed me what I needed to see against Fundora. If anything, he was a bit unlucky to settle for the draw there. Uh, he fought well. Now, he has been dropped three times. Uh, if Gachet was a heavier puncher, uh, I might be less inclined to go with the Clark pick, but I am going to say Clark, by close unanimous decision, I think he's young, he's hungry, and Gachet just doesn't have that spark. Clark might mm. win this one just by out-hustling Gachet. Yeah, yep, it's possible. Like I said, I, I very nearly did go for that. But, um, 
yeah, I, I think it's entirely possible, but we shall see. We shall. We shall indeed. Uh, so those are our picks for Saturday's triple header. Uh, we have one pick left to make for the week. Uh, on Wednesday night, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, Showbox returns with a four-fight card, and we'll make our picks for the main event of that. But first, a reminder of what's on the undercard there. At 122 pounds, Thomas Velasquez versus Victor Padilla, both undefeated. Uh, at lightweight, two more undefeated fighters, Stephen Ortiz versus Jeremy Hill. And in the co-main, 130 pounders, undefeated Misael Lopez versus once-beaten George Jordan, fight, Jordan White. Uh, all three fights look competitive on paper, as we've come to expect when Gordon Hall is booking Showbox fights. Uh, but the 140-pound main event, that's the one fight we'll be making picks for, that does have a clear betting favorite. That's Brandon Lee, the 21-year-old knockout artist who is 21-0 with 19 KOs, including 12 in a row, all in three rounds or fewer. Uh, the underdog is Samuel Teer, or perhaps Samuel T. We shall see how he's pronounced. Uh, <laughs> 17, three and one with seven KOs. But as we discussed last week, he's never been down and he's never been stopped. So Eric, you've had another week to mull it over. What's your pick? And does the knockout streak advance to 13 in a row? I'm going to say yes. The knockout streak continues, but... I say that with some serious hesitation. Uh, T knows how to handle himself in there. He's sparred with Terrence Crawford. Uh, he's not going to be intimidated by Lee's record. I'm not going to pick him to win straight up here for our picks competition. Uh, it's just not really worth taking this big an underdog. But in a betting sense, I haven't seen the odds yet. But if, if the betting odds were like 10 to 1 to take him, uh, and, and I do expect odds to come out between now and Wednesday. If he's like 10 to 1 or more, he's live enough to win that I think it's worth a shot mm. at those numbers. But we don't get rewarded for taking an underdog in our picks competition, so I'm not going that way. Uh, Brandon Lee's power seems legit. Uh, he needs some professional rounds. I sure hope he gets some here, and I do think he will. One key for Lee is how much he goes to the body. If he puts in that work to the body, which he does tend to do, then he greatly increases his chances of being the first to stop or drop Tay. In the end, Tay makes Lee work, but the talent and the power tell. Uh, but it might get into the latest rounds before Lee finally wears him down. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a body shot that ends it. I will say Brandon Lee, KO9. All right. Yeah, look, it feels as if this is about as perfect a matchup as we could want Lee to face right now, right? I mean, we talked about this the last time that we saw him, um, that we you want to see him stretched at least a little bit. Um, but the challenge has been finding somebody who's, who's able to stand up to him and give him something of a test without, you know, being too much at this stage of his, his career. Samuel T feels like the ideal opponent to do this. It's not just that he hasn't ever been down or knocked out. It's also that he's been in with a decent standard of opposition, but not too good. He's done well against that opposition, but not too well, right? He's, it feels like he's absolutely the perfect kind of guy uh, for Brandon Lee to face right now. Um, but I also don't think that he's got enough to actually trouble Lee. I do think I only see one winner here. Um, I also think that partly because he probably doesn't have enough to stop Lee is one reason why I also do feel that much as I was tempted to think that, you know what, maybe he's actually going to take him the distance this time. I'm not going to pick him to do that. I am going to pick Lee for a stoppage, but Lee is going to go past four rounds for the first time in his career. He's going to go quite a few rounds past the fourth round for the first time in his career. But I do think he is going to start breaking him down sort of around the middle rounds. It'll be an increasingly unpleasant experience for Tay. And I disagree with you profoundly. <laughs> 
it's going to go <laughs> to the eighth round and no further. Okay. You had me on the edge of my seat waiting to see if you were headed toward a shared Lee KO9. But uh, all we need is one round of difference to create the opportunity exactly. for someone to gain on the other. So, okay. Uh, there is one other fight on Saturday we have to discuss. It's one we've both been looking forward to for a while, uh, off and on, for the last eight-plus years since prime Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez won a close decision over Juan Francisco Estrada in an outstanding bout at 108 pounds. They're finally set to do it again Saturday night from the American Airlines Center in Dallas with DAZN carrying it at very different points in their careers, with Estrada now 30 and Gonzalez now 33. There's also an intriguing rematch on the undercard between Jessica McCaskill and Cecilia Brakus. Uh, and the night before in Thailand, a man who's very familiar with both Chocolatito and Estrada, Srisaket Sorung Visai, will be in action but clearly, the hardcore boxing fans' gaze is focused more on Gonzalez Estrada 2 than on those other fights. Kieran, are these two as well-matched now as they were in 2012? And what would victory here mean for either man? Yeah, I feel like they probably are as well-matched as they were in 2012. And arguably, they're better matched now than at any time since 2012, right? So, like, over the years following that matchup, Chocolatito emerged as one of the best and then the best in the world pound for pound. And as good as Estrada was, and he's been consistently exceptionally good for a long time now, I think that probably at any stage between their first meeting and 2017, Estrada would have been the clear underdog against Chocolatito. Not a massive underdog, because that first fight was very close, um, but he would have been the dog. Um, and then there were a few years after Chocolatito had those back-to-back -back losses to Srisaketsu or Rungvisai, when he would have been the clear underdog, arguably a bigger underdog than Estrada ever would have been. But now it kind of seems like it's leveled out a little bit again. Chocolatito's yeah. had those comeback wins against Kalyafai and Israel Gonzalez, and Estrada's had some tough fights in the last few years. You know, two against Risiket, two against Carlos Quadras, among others, and you have to feel that they've taken something out of him. So it was a very close fight in 2012, and I think it figures to be a close fight in 2021. As for what it would mean for either man, oddly, on one level, given the excitement over the matchup and the quality of it, not necessarily an enormous amount. They're both reaching the end of their careers, as you alluded to. They're already two of the three top guys in that division. There aren't too many fights that are presently closed up to either of them that would suddenly open up with a win. Um, they're both probably future Hall of Famers. Chocolatito, definitely. Estrada, probably, I think. Their legacies are secure. So I guess in that sense, what it means in the legacy sense, maybe it means a little bit more to Estrada than Gonzalez. Like if Estrada wins, he can argue that he was truly Chocolatito's peer, mm -hmm. that he lost by a very close margin in the first fight, that he showed he could beat him in the second fight, and that he has a win over Strisaket, which, which Gonzalez couldn't do. If Chocolatito wins, maybe it, it probably cements him as being just that little bit better than Estrada over the course of their careers, you know? And we've been talking a lot about uh, Ali Frazier this week, and rightly so. And, and it almost reminds me of, of a quote from Jerry Eisenberg, uh, the New York Star-Ledger, when he wrote after the thriller Manila, um, something to the effect of, they weren't fighting for the championship of the world. They were fighting for the championship of each other. And in a sense, I feel like that's what this is uh, between these two guys without, as far as I'm aware, the burning hatred that, that was at the center of the Ali Frazier thing. So, um, so yeah, I think it's going to be a very close fight. I think that the odds, like what's at stake is both more and perhaps somewhat less than you would imagine. But I think it's going to be, I have a hard time picking a winner 
now. That's for darn sure. And, um, you know, I suspect that that's all fairly reflected in the odds. You were talking about this with Breadman Edwards when we had him on a few weeks ago about what some of the odds might be. What are the lines saying? And are they interesting enough that you might be planning to bet this one? Or are you just going to sit back and enjoy it without anything at stake? So I'm seeing the same odds I saw a few weeks ago at, at one sports book. The line hasn't moved there. It's Estrada minus 138 favorite, Gonzalez plus 110 underdog. And that bet that Breadman likes, the draw, still is sitting there at 18 to 1. Uh, at a different sports book, the numbers are slightly different. Estrada is a little bit of a bigger favorite, minus 167. So if you like Chocolatito, you'd want to bet him at that other sports book where he's plus 138. Um, it's a minus 240 favorite that the fight will go the distance, uh, a plus 175 underdog, not to. Estrada by KO is kind of interesting. That's plus 333. Doesn't hmm. seem the most likely scenario, but we did see Srisaket knock Chocolatito mm-hmm. out brutally in their rematch. It's not impossible that Estrada proves too much for him and makes Chocolatito look old again like Srisaket did. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's not an easy fight to call by any means. I haven't bet it yet. But uh, this is not a fight where I need a bet and a rooting interest to care. I already am pumped to watch this one regardless. So I think I'll probably go the Breadman route and put 10 bucks on the draw at 18 to 1 and otherwise sit back and enjoy the fight and not really sweat my bet unless it reaches the championship rounds and it's close, at which point... I'll root for neither guy to get knocked out and and then sweat the decision. Um, Honestly, I like both of these fighters too much to place a bet that causes me to root against either of them. Uh, It's not really worth it. Like, I I don't bet against my Philly teams in games that matter. And uh, these guys are both my team, in a sense. So, uh, yeah, I will bet the draw, and uh, then I'll just enjoy it as a neutral boxing fan. There you go. Yeah, that works. That's a good plan. And actually, not a bad idea. I mean, even... You know, between when they fought, when either of them fought Quadras, it's very little in it all the yep. time. It, it's it's not an it's not an unlikely bet. I think it's it's an entirely probable result. So. And and when either of them fought Srisaket, other than the Chocolatito rematch with Srisaket, but let's not forget yep. that Chocolatito very well could have won the decision in the first fight. Yeah, these guys have a tendency to go dis- go the distance in close fights uh, when they're against opponents on their on their same level. Yeah. All right, it is time for the boxing tweet of the week, and it's my turn to pick it. And this week, it goes to a good friend of the show, the one and only Rafe Bartholomew, my former editor at Grantland, now a senior features editor at Fox Sports Digital. And Rafe is great at uncovering boxing's (laughs) humorous little moments. He seems to scour Instagram and Twitter and weird corners of the internet to find stuff. And on Saturday morning, he cut a six-second video of Teddy Atlas and shared it on Twitter. And I've uh, I've sent it to you by email, okay. Kieran, uh, so you'll be right. able to watch it and react, and, and we'll share the audio with the listeners. It's Teddy Atlas in his office, I assume recording his podcast. I don't know the context. Uh, Rafe tweeted a line that goes with it, says, sometimes you just need to get away. And then he shared this clip. So uh, All right. go I'm ahead ready and Ready hit... for me to click? Yes, go ahead and hit play, Kieran. Then you could go, you know, you could go on a retreat and come back later, you know, go on a vatical. <laughs> then you could go, you know, you could go on a retreat and come back later, you know, go on a vatical. Is that like a sabbatical to St. Peter's Square? 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, that's that. I'm glad that you listened to it twice because it does. It's the first time as the wait. What did he say? And then the second time. Yep, he said the word radical. Uh, look, T- Teddy can be an easy target at times. Um, I'm yeah. I'm guessing he meant to use the word sabbatical, but he said radical, which sabbatical in the Vatican in Vatican City. I don't know. Uh, maybe you go on a vatical just before you fade into Bolivian. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure who Teddy was talking about, and I really don't care. Uh, Teddy is one of boxing's kings of unintentional comedy. So, uh, yeah, Kieran, uh, tell me any of your thoughts uh, on the tweet. And it's okay to laugh at Teddy, right? As as long as he doesn't know you're laughing at him. Yeah, that's the key part, the second part. No, I'm all about laughing at Teddy, actually, uh, because, you know, not least because, A, he could take it, and B, he's perfectly fine to dish it out. But, yes, of course, it's... I guess we're entitled to to laugh at other people's misuse of words because with all the words that we've spoken, boy, we've had some stupid ones in there. So, good Lord, I know plenty of people that take pot shots at us. So, damn it, we're going to laugh at other people. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's a, that's a fair attitude. Although, I don't know that we've ever quite made up a word as clearly <laughs> far from being a word as vatical. But... Yeah, every one of our words is perfectly cromulent. <laughs> Indeed. Indeedly doodly. <laughs> All right, it's news time. Uh, There was quite a lot of outside-the-ring news last week, not so much inside-the-ring action. So we'll just lump our fight recaps in here instead of devoting a separate segment to it. But first, the main event of the Newsweek, a major fight to determine 140-pound supremacy has been announced and confirmed. Josh Taylor versus Jose Ramirez. It is set for May 22nd in Las Vegas, maybe in front of limited fans, according to promoter Top Rank. Uh, We talked last week about Top Rank making plans to go outside of that MGM bubble. Uh, Do you expect, Eric, that they'll be able to indeed host fans for this one? Uh, Obviously, we'll explore the matchup in more depth later, but quick thoughts on it for now. So I doubt we'll be at full arenas by May 22nd, especially not indoors. Uh, And by May 22nd, it's getting hot enough in Vegas that you don't really want to do it outdoors. So, you know, it might well be like 20% capacity, putting like 3,000 fans in the MGM Grand Garden Arena or something. But I would expect they will indeed be able to do that. The vaccine distribution in the U.S. has really picked up. Uh, gee, I can't imagine why. Surely yeah, it's right? just a coincidence that there seems to be some degree of organization and effort and interest in saving lives over the last <laughs> six or seven weeks. Um, so the word is, by May, there will be enough supply for every adult to be vaccinated. Um, you know, life won't be back to normal, but it'll be close enough to have fans at fights in Nevada, I do believe. Whether Taylor's fans from across the pond will be able to travel to this, I don't know. I sure hope so. Uh, in any case... I like the fight a lot. I do view Taylor as a clear favorite. You know, Ramirez is very good, but I'd probably make him a tiny underdog to the guy that Taylor beat, Regis Progre. Um, So I I do view him as the clear underdog here, but I've been wrong a time or two before. Um, It's an excellent fight. These guys are numbers one and two in the TBRB, 140-pound rankings, uh, where they're in the correct order as well. Taylor won, Ramirez two, and, and the winner becomes the champ. So uh, what more can you ask for? Indeed. Uh, as you said, it was a busy news week, especially in terms of fights being announced or rumored. So here's what else we have. 
Top Rank announced an April 24th show in Kiss of My Ass, Florida. Headline, nah. <laughs> see, a little reward for those who listen every week. Those, <laughs> those who missed last week's show have no idea why I called it That's Kiss of so. My Ass. Uh, that show is headlined by Emmanuel Navarrete versus Christopher Diaz with Edgar Berlanga and his KO1 streak on the undercard. On the same date, not officially announced yet, but a Fox pay-per-view headlined by Andy Ruiz versus Chris Ariola is reportedly happening, and Twitter reaction to that being a pay-per-view was not exactly favorable. Uh, Joe Smith Jr. versus Maxim Vlasov has been rescheduled for April 10th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, ESPN still to televise. Some rumored fights. The Athletics' Mike Coppinger reports that Tank Davis is looking to move up to 140 pounds and face Mario Barrios over the summer. He also reports that Devin Haney versus Jorge Linares is in the works for May. And Dan Rayfield reports that Zerto Ramirez and Dimitri Bivol are negotiating for an intriguing 175-pound showdown. And last bit of news, nothing to do with upcoming fights. Heavyweight Joseph Parker has amicably parted ways with longtime trainer Kevin Barry, saying it's because Parker wants to stay in New Zealand to train, whereas Barry is based in Vegas. Although maybe Parker's stale performance last week versus Junior Fa had something right. to do with it. Uh, Kieran, quick thoughts on any of these undercard news items? I love the idea of Davis Barrios. And, and mm-hmm. full credit, especially to Barrios, for wanting to take the fight if it does indeed happen. I mean, he's still, you know, really a contender's status with a potentially a really good career ahead of him. So to take on a guy like Tank Davis, potentially, at this stage of his career, that says a lot for him. Um, it, as for Haney Linares, so difficult to know what to think about a fight that might involve Jorge, Jorge Linares. Because on the one hand, he can be that skilled, tough, experienced former champion. And then on the other hand, he can be the guy with the chin made of glass against blown out in the first round so you just never know like is it a really good test for Devin Haney or is it going to be an early night um so he's such a conundrum so uh you know uh, at this stage I would think that probably Haney's going to have too much for Linares but uh, it does have some intrigue uh I'd really like the idea of Ramirez versus Bivol and again I think a big statement by both men to take such a tough opposition on the back of long periods of inactivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bivol hasn't fought since late 2019. Ramirez has fought just once since late 2019. Um, Ruiz Ariola is a guilty pleasure fight. There's no question about it. Although on his, I think even on his worst day, Andy Ruiz should have far too much skill for, for Ariola. Um, and he looks, at least in his social media posts, as if he's in one of his phases of actually being in somewhat good shape. Yeah. Uh, uh, as for it being on pay-per-view, ugh. Um, <laughs> yeah. But although I hate to say it, I am afraid that these two guys going at it might actually sell more pay-per-views than Clarissa Shields did on Friday night. Mm -hmm. Um, Talking of the quote, uh, Clarissa turned back yet another supposed big challenge, uh, dominating Marie-Yves Decaire over 10 junior middleweight rounds to win a unanimous decision and become undisputed champion in a second weight class. And on Thursday... Atop a Ring City USA card from Puerto Rico, Brandon Adams scored a dramatic and violent come-from-behind eighth-round knockout of Sergei Boachuk, uh, handing Boachuk his first loss and overcoming a point deduction, a deficit on the cards, and a slippery ring, even. Uh, anything to say about either the Adams knockout or the Shields whitewash? Well, Shields by decision is one of the easiest bets in boxing. Uh, I made it here at a minus 225 price. It's pretty close to guaranteed money. As long as she's fighting two-minute rounds and facing competent opponents, which DeCare was, uh, that's what you're going to get. This just wasn't close. The CompuBox stats on the DeCare side tell the story. 263 punches thrown over 10 rounds. She landed just 31 of them, 12%. Shields outlanded her in every round. 
as we've said before, if you count amateur and pro resume, Clarissa is the quote, and uh, yep. she padded that status with an easy one here. Or, you know, I call it an easy one. It was a fight she made look easy. I'm not sure right. that it would have been easy for too many other fighters out there. Uh, Brandon Adams. Uh, man, I, I talked about my winning bet on Shields. I'm kicking myself for not betting Adams. He was about a two and a half to one underdog. I thought it was a 50-50-ish fight, but I saw those odds favoring Bohachuk widely, and I didn't trust myself. I said, well, I don't know Bohachuk that well. The odds makers might know more than I do, so I stayed away, and I, and I missed a bet. Uh, thrilling ending. Great left hook from Adams to turn the fight around. You mentioned the slippery ring. Uh, that was a problem throughout the card. Do you know the, the story about uh, soon-to-be Hall of Famer Jay Larkin and slippery rings? Was that the one where Mitch Halpern was the ref and it involved sort of Diet Coke or something to that effect? <laughs> yes, I, I did. You know, right one? You, I didn't remember who the ref was. You might be right that it was Mitch Halpern. I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, for anyone uh, out there who, who doesn't know this story, it, it's pretty cool. I'll tell it quickly. A little offbeat boxing history for the kids at home. It was a December 1998 Showtime card in Atlantic City. Johnny Tapia versus Nana Kanadu was the main event. Guys were slipping and sliding all over the wet painted logo. And I believe the story goes that Jay's wife worked in the theater. She did something on Broadway or off Broadway. She was a theater person. So he he knew his way around the theater business. And he knew what they did when there was a slippery stage floor. As you just said, they poured soda on it and then would wipe that down to leave it sticky. So on this night, with a Showtime boxing card turning semi-disastrous because the fighters kept falling down and losing their footing, Jay went into the ring with a Coke or a Pepsi or whatever. I'll give them both equal play so as not to hurt our chances of either of them <laughs> advertising on the podcast. Uh, but he, he poured soda on the canvas and then wiped it down with a towel. And it wasn't perfect, but it worked well enough to get through the show. So uh, our, our Ring City friends, Kurt, Evan, uh, if this happens again, get in there with the Coke or the Pepsi and uh, and get to work. There you go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, we've talked about Brandon Adams before, of course. I mean, we've previewed at least one of his fights on this podcast mm -hmm. when he challenged Jamal Charlo. And he is one of those men who is just going to ask some serious questions of you. And you better come with the answers <laughs> or you're in for a really rough night. Uh, you better be in the best possible shape. You better not drop your concentration for even a second, as Burchuk found out. You better be prepared to dig deep and fight. Um, if you're off your game or not quite good enough or you let that concentration slip, he will find you out. He isn't necessarily the greatest, the smoothest, the, the most skillful, the most accomplished, but God, he's an exceptionally difficult out for anyone and anyone who is in the ring with him is going to know about it, win or lose afterwards. A tough night for Burchick, but it happens. Mm -hmm. It's one of those fights that could actually be a really good learning experience for him. Uh, he can learn from this and bounce back. But I actually find myself happy for Adams. He's not a guy I know, but he just comes across as a really honest, solid pro, the kind of guy that you want to do well, right? Because mm -hmm. he's clearly somebody who maximizes his abilities and comes in phenomenal shape all the time. Um, and, and as for Clarissa, look, what can I say? I'm, I'm a fan. I have been for a while. I think that's amazing to me when talking about Clarissa Shields. Is she's still only 11 and 0, and she's still only 25. And yes, the fact that she's the first person to win four belts in two weight divisions says as much about the proliferation of title belts <laughs> right. and the relative paucity of high-level competition in women's boxing. But... Yeah, like you said, there's just no doubt in her resume. Yeah, you can argue that maybe she wouldn't have beaten Lucia Riker in her day, or that pound for pound she, you know, wasn't uh, at the level of Leila Ali. I don't know if either of those statements are true, but you can at least make them right. in good faith. 
But Shields now has two Olympic gold medals, and she's taken on and beaten everyone who's been put in front of her. Um, Mark Taffet, her advisor, tweeted out that in her victories over undefeated champions, Decare, Hammer, and Adler, uh, Clarissa Shields outlanded her opponents by a margin of 365 to 86. Wow. I mean, she's just toying with all these people who are put up as being good opponents for her. Um, she is the quote. And, and she's as good a boxer as Savannah Marshall is. I, I don't see her being able to keep this version of Shields off of her. The one thing that I will say, and you've already touched on it, I say often when it comes to women's boxing, it is BS that I could just walk in off the street and have an amateur bout, and because I have a penis, I would have three-minute rounds to work with. <laughs> and the greatest women's fighter of all time is forced to fight two-minute rounds. Like, she gets ahead of steam going, and then it's over. Uh, that is why, like you said, Shields by decision is 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 such a uh, relatively easy pick to make, and what, one of the reasons why KO uh, percentages are relatively low in, in, the, in the women's game. The number of times we've seen Claressa Shields have her opponent wobbled at one minute 50 of a round, and then not get the chance to finish her off, uh, I do hope that that changes at some point in the future uh the listeners were probably hoping that after we were talking about our own butts earlier on that they wouldn't have to picture any other parts of our anatomy and here you go dropping dropping comments mm -hmm. about your junk here we go yeah what's it gonna do but the only comment was that i have it right right to true right it's up to anyone else whether they took that and pictured anything i suppose so precisely okay yes. let's move on oh, um <laughs> So uh, we split the news segment uh, into the, the main event and the undercard, but the whole podcast to this point really has been undercard to this next segment, the main event, the top five list. The assignment I gave Kieran last week was to rank the top five specific weapons in boxing right now, using as examples from the past, Larry Holmes's jab, Felix Trinidad's left hook, and so forth. As we discussed offline, uh, after I made the assignment, this is our most wide open list yet. So many different directions you can go with it. If 100 people made top five lists on this, I suspect no two would look exactly the same. So I'm excited to hear your list, Karen. Count it down for me. Yeah, like you said, like this is one list that more than any other we've done so far could run not only way past five, but 10, 15. Uh, I no doubt there are going to be a great many that you think of that I either forgot about or didn't think about and i know this is when my listeners are going to have a lot to say about it mm -hmm. um boxes on this list are generally all at or near the top of their divisions or the pound for pound list because it's difficult to make a case that a web box's primary weapon is particularly potent if he or she is four and 15 right um but there are some boxes here who would arguably have significantly worse records if they didn't have that one big weapon um Equally, there are a couple on this list who are so good you could make a case for several aspects of their game being like that one big weapon. Um, and I had to think a little to figure out exactly what one element was the thing that allowed everything else to click. I'm not sure, as we discussed offline, how you're going to feel about the extent to which I actually abided by the criteria you laid down okay. with this list. But there are all kinds of ways you could go with it. Um, we'll see what you think about this. Uh, it's not necessarily a fifth to first countdown. I guess it kind of sort of is. It's more of a general list. To start things off, we will go with something that fits very much in what you were talking about. Clear, specific. Uh, it's one particular punch, and it is the Deontay Wilder right hand. Um, 
at the end of the day, we can talk about boxers' footwork, their defense, their ring generalship, and I will be talking about all of these. But you can't win a fight unless you can land some punches. And I think still the single biggest equalizer and then some in terms of punches has to still be Deontay Wilder's right hand. There's nothing subtle about it. It isn't short. It isn't hidden. It isn't sneaky. Uh, Given Wilder's enormous wingspan and the fact that he often throws it from way back it may actually travel farther than any other power punch in the history of the sport but he delivers it with such strength and such power that even if he doesn't land it properly it can do all kinds of damage on his opponent's jaw and now that wilder's becomes something of a meme and an excuse making machine and we're all a little bit concerned i think about where he's at after that tyson fury fight i could certainly hear some people saying well deontay wilder what's the guy like he doing on this list but Even as he improved as a boxer over a period of several years, the fact remained that his fundamentals were, for a person at his level in the sport, not great. Uh, He doesn't set up his punches well, can't fight going backwards, can't cope with a stiff, steady jab. But God, he has that right hand. Um, And he could be in deep, deep doo-doo and suddenly fire off a right hand. If it lands just right, it's it's good night. Luis Ortiz has a hell of a chin. Wilder knocked him out twice. Um, Once in a slugfest that showcased the best and once in a fight in which he appeared to be at his worst until he landed that one punch. Without that right hand, Wilder would be nowhere near the top of the heavyweight division. Uh, If he'd used it to knock out Tyson Fury in the rematch, he'd be much higher on this list. But even as it is, even with all the other question marks about Deontay Wilder, Damn, he's got that one punch. Yeah, that is actually the only weapon that I consider essential to have in the top five. That it would that it would have upset me if it hadn't appeared somewhere on your okay. list. There's nothing else that I jotted down that I felt like he's got to have this, uh, which I guess is sort of a way of saying that this might have been my number one. I didn't make my okay. own list and put him in order. But yeah, uh, for all the reasons you said, this is still the biggest punch in boxing right now, even if he's coming off a loss and hasn't fought in a year. To me, to me, this is a weapon that can't be ignored. Okay. Um, but if you're going to include Wilder, you kind of have to include his conqueror. I mean, you don't have to, but we're going to. Um, and this is, I think, the first pick that you might think, good God, what the hell is he talking about? Where is he going with this list? Um, obviously, talking about Tyson Fury. And there's nothing and nobody really in contemporary boxing quite like him. He's a mountain of a man who looks like his greatest physical exertion is a game of darts with the lads. But um, he's a tough guy from a tough family. But success in the ring isn't built on flat-out aggression, but on being this enigma of a boxer. You just don't expect a man who looks the way he does to fight the way he does. And there are so many elements. I talked earlier about how some fighters, there are so many things you could point to. You could point to his footwork. You could point about the way he sneakily throws in his, his backhand without, you know, and disguises it very well. Um, you know, his, his hand speed is remarkable. But what I'm going to go with here, and this is, probably the first time you're going to go, what, Um, is Tyson Fury's feints, his constant Mm. body movement. Uh, I love the fact that he, I love to watch quiet boxers, boxers who are really composed and, 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 and not using up any energy. But I also love watching Fury, and he's the opposite. Watch him. Just watch. It's exhausting to just watch him. His hands are constantly twitching, constantly moving. His head's constantly twitching. It's constantly moving. I remember having a conversation with Freddie Roach when Manny Pacquiao was at his peak, and he would say that one of the biggest difficulties that Manny Pacquiao's opponents had was they could never time him. They could right. never figure out what he was going to do because he was so unpredictable. And it must be like that with fighting Tyson Fury. Is he about to – oh, wait, he's about to throw a jab. No, he isn't. No, 
Now he's about to throw a right hand. There's a jab. It's his constant moving, and he's able to do it in such a relaxed way that he doesn't burn up any energy. There are so many aspects of Tyson Fury's game that make him very good. You could have picked a particular punch, could have picked his jab, you could have picked his footwork. But I'm going to go a little bit outside the box, and I think what really makes him so tricky is his constant upper body movement, and specifically his constant fainting that always has his opponents guessing about what's coming next. I am totally fine with that choice, with you going a little outside the box there. Are feints a weapon in the most traditional sense? Not really, but considering that I had jotted down on my list as a possibility, I put a question mark after it, but I wrote down Fury's brain, question mark, mm, as yeah. a weapon. So if, I, if I'm considering his brain a weapon, his feints certainly count, so that's a good pick. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to include a jab. Uh, the jab is the fundamental punch in boxing. You can get by without a good jab. Uh, but it makes life an awful lot easier if you have one. It's not the sexiest punch in boxing, um, but it is often the one that makes a lot of those other sexy punches possible. Um, for my money right now, there may not, there are not very many better exponents of it than, than Errol Spence. Um, he rode that jab to victory over Danny Garcia. He rode it to victory over Mikey Garcia. He used it to set up his win over Sean Porter. He isn't a number one jabber statistically. He's the fifth busiest jabber uh, of fighters ranked by, uh, tracked by CompuBox behind Callum Smith, Dmitry Bivol, Alexander Usyk, and perhaps surprisingly, Jamal James. Uh, and his jab connect percentage is all the way down in like 24th. But, you know, as an example of how important it is to him, just watch those fights with either of the Garcias. You know, 419 of his 707 thrown punches against Danny were jabs. And they're not tapping range-finding jabs either. His jabs are long-range, keep-you-at-distance, spearing jabs, uh, and delivered from the southpaw stance as well, of course. He's one of the best boxers in the world, pound for pound right now, Errol Spence, and there are a lot of different tools that he has. But if you want to beat him, you had better figure out how to get past that jab, because if he gets it going, he's going to win. Yeah, solid pick. Uh, I hadn't jot. I was trying to figure out what Spence's best weapon was and ultimately didn't jot anything down here, but sort of thought that he had a few different weapons that could be considered and the jab was one of them. I do have two other guys whose jabs I jotted down. I won't mm -hmm. say them now just in case they come up on your list. I'll circle back to them at the end. But uh, yeah, can't argue with the Errol Spence jab. Uh, so the next two on the list are two of the best boxes in the world right now. Spoiler alert, my nominal number one is the number one fighter pound for pound. Uh, my number two is a young man who's on his way there and who's an absolutely thrilling guy to watch for so many reasons, and that's Teofimo Lopez. Um, the challenge, Lopez and Canelo are, again, the challenge is that they do so many yep. things well that it's very difficult to isolate any one particular weapon. You know, with Lopez, he's a joy to watch because he's always so compact, he's always within range, and he's so efficient with his power punches. Um, again, many elements of his game you could isolate and identify as a key weapon here. Um, for me, ultimately, what makes him so spectacular and so successful is his power, but we want to be more specific than that. What makes that power so effective is the kind of power punches he throws. Um, I've just talked about the value of a jab, but there's always the exception that proves the rule. Lopez has a good jab. He used it effectively against Vasily Lomachenko, but you look at the knockout reels of Teofimo Lopez, and what makes him a little bit different is... He is, they're all going to be full of him landing power punch leads. He will just, he's got a very good counter punch as well, especially a straight right. But he has the ability to just stand there and with very little movement, suddenly launch a lead left hook that'll knock a guy out or an overhand right out of nowhere that'll knock a guy out. 
And the beauty of it and why he's so effective is he times it perfectly. And so you, I almost wanted to say like his footwork or his timing or what really make it work. But I felt like that was maybe a little bit too nebulous. You watch Teofimo Lopez. What it is is his ability to throw a really compact power punch lead, either from left or from right. I've seen him knock guys out by landing a left hook and then another left hook. Or sometimes he'll just throw a, a right hand out of absolutely nowhere. That's what I think makes Teofimo Lopez so effective. I faced the exact same conundrum thinking about both of these guys. I wasn't sure quite what the weapon was for Teofimo, but I did think he could well belong somewhere on this list. That's a good choice. I also struggled with Canelo. I did ultimately settle on a weapon for him. So I guess now I'll uh, find out if uh, you chose the same Canelo weapon uh, as I did. Yeah, Canelo is one guy. It's funny you talk about Tyson Fury's brain. Boy, this is another one, right? I mean, gosh, he's a smart fighter. Uh, and, and he's a joy to watch in real time. And then when you're actually going through tape for an exercise like this, and you're breaking him down, I think he's even more impressive. It's extraordinary how many things he does really well. Uh, I talked about Tyson Fury's feints. Canelo feints brilliantly. Uh, cons his opponents into thinking, say, a body punch is coming, and then it winds up being a left hook to the head. Um, Teofimo Lopez's strength is his power punch leads. Canelo's got them too. Errol Spence has a good jab. Canelo has one of those too. Deontay Wilder can blitz people with his right hand. Canelo can do that too. Um, for me, what makes all of this possible, what is Canelo's ultimate weapon, though, isn't an offensive tool at all. It's his head movement. Mm -hmm. um, it's rare to think of such an accomplished offensive fighter as being also a defensive master. But Canelo is. His defense, his head movement is incredibly subtle. And it's what enables him to be in a position to launch his offense. He can stand comfortably in the pocket and feel confident that he isn't taking an unnecessary risk because he knows he has the ability to slip any incoming punches and remain in place to deliver his own punches from close to mid-range, which is what enables him to get maximum torque and impact on his punches and to throw those combinations that are so effective. Again, so many elements that are a part of that, his balance, his footwork, his brain, his eyesight, all of which make it possible. But fundamentally, the fact that he's able to stand in so close is what is enable, enables him to, to fire the punches that are effective. And he's able to do that because he's really confident in his ability to slip punches. Canelo's head movement, I feel, is what's really elevated his game over the last few years. That is a fine choice. Uh, although, you know, if, it's a, if, if I'm in the ring and I have to choose between uh, dealing with Canelo's head movement and Deontay Wilder's right hand, I'm, sure. I'm taking Canelo's sure. head movement uh, every time. But yeah, not really a fair comparison. I had, uh, I had jotted down for Canelo. I was ultimately going with the left to the body. I think he mm -hmm. has matured into maybe the best body puncher in the game right now. Uh, but no, his defense has for several years now been such a, a key element of, of setting him apart and why he was able to, when so many people were expecting Gennady Golovkin to overwhelm him in their first fight, his defense was such a key element of getting him through that fight. Uh, whatever you thought of the decision, that was that was key to him yeah. being able to compete with, with then still fairly prime Gennady Golovkin, and he's only gotten better since. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, like I said, you watch tape of Canelo, it's it's extraordinary. The more you watch Canelo, how good he is at so many aspects of the game. It's mm. it's 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 really a thing to behold to break down some Canelo tape. He is he is a fantastic prize fighter. Um, in terms of honorable mentions, uh, and I must admit, I got you know once I got to about five or six or whatever, I kind of stopped yeah. going on. But um, a few years ago. 
Gennady Golovkin's footwork would have been top of my list. It was that that enabled him to deliver his power punches with such effectiveness. Uh, he's lost a lot of that over the last few years. He just doesn't cut off the ring the way he did. Uh, and that's a key reason why he's starting to show decline and a key reason why he's not able to land that right hand with quite such the power that he was able to. But one thing that has remained is his jab. It's a ramrod of a jab. It's almost a power punch. And it's an increasingly important part of the Golovkin offense. Would have been part of my top five. Now with where Gennady is, it's just outside. But if you said his, his jab deserved to be in the top five, I wouldn't argue with you. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to just finish off my other also? Yeah, run, run, run through all your honorable mentions. And then I'll uh, uh, Another one whose star has dimmed a little, uh, but would have been at the very top not so long ago, is Vasily Lomachenko. Uh, what, but when he's at his best... What makes everything about him work so well is his balance. It's his ability to always be compact, to move in the smallest of circles uh, uh, around his opponent. Um, And others that come to mind, again, maybe they're a bit generic for the guidelines. Um, Manny Pacquiao's hand speed, Alexander Usyk's footwork, Artur Bedebiev's power punch combinations. Uh, a couple of specific ones that definitely fit. Javante Davis's left uppercut, uh-huh. Anthony Joshua's right uppercut. Um, and really, I should probably put in uh, Adrian Bronner's defensive uh, abilities, given that, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, he finally achieved what Willie Pep could only achieve in mythology <laughs> and win around without landing any punches. So there you go. I like that. This is the first and last time Adrian Broner will be compared to Willie Pep. Um, yeah, I had the Javante left uppercut on my short list. I had Noah Inouye's name written down, and I struggled to decide what his best weapon yeah. was. Straight right, counter left, hook to the body, could have been any of those. Uh, maybe it's just because it's fresh in my mind, but the Oscar Valdez short left hook uh, mm. was a contender for me. I did have Lomachenko's footwork, which is similar to, to what you had. Um I thought, you know, you were referencing how Golovkin a couple of years ago, the jab would have been on there for sure. That was my, what my thinking with Manny Pacquiao straight left hand. Yep. A few years ago, that is yep. easily on the list. And 10 years ago, it's probably number one, not quite top five worthy anymore. I wasn't sure what to do with Terrence Crawford. I was thinking Me sort, of, either. sort of an outside the box route with him would have been to say his stance switch. Uh, nope. is, is, is a top weapon, but you could also just say his jab from the southpaw stance or his left hand from the southpaw stance. Um, and the other jab I was considering was Joe Joyce's, although I'm not sure, mm. am I overrating it based on one fight? Maybe. Uh, so I'm not sure about that one. And then the one other big knockout weapon that you didn't mention, uh, Joe Smith Jr.'s overhand right uh, was on my call. short list. That is a good call, actually. Yeah. But it's interesting. I think it shows... When you think about it, that yeah, there there have historically been been fighters, and there are now fighters who have a signature punch or whatever. But when you are watching tape to to try to break it down, you realize it just emphasizes how many little things go into being able to deliver the punch perfectly or, or mm-hmm. being a successful fighter. It all begins way back, well before the punch is even delivered, and and that's why I think it's really hard when you've got the really good guys, the Canelos, the Crawfords, and whatever, who do so many things so well. Isolating that one big weapon of theirs can be hard. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I'm sure we uh, we left out a few good ones, so I'll be curious oh, to yes. see what the listeners have to say in terms of some weapons we didn't even mention. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks again to our guest, Tim Ryan. Uh, we will be back next week to recap the two Showtime cards and cover everything else going on in the boxing world. Plus, I will have a new top five list to assign to Eric. Until then, thank you for listening.
It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply.